Our scripture comes to us today from the book of Acts, chapter 17, and we'll be reading from verses 24 to 34. The God who made the world and everything in it is the Lord of heaven and earth and does not live in temples built by human hands. And he is not served by human hands as if he needed anything, as if he needed anything. Rather, he himself gives everyone life and breath and everything else. From one man he made all the nations, that they should inhabit the whole earth, and he marked out their appointed times in history and the boundaries of their lands. God did this so that they would, not, so that they would seek him and perhaps reach out for him and find him, though he is not far away from any one of us. For in him we live and move and have our being. As some of your own poets have said, we are his offspring. Therefore, since we are God's offspring, we should not think that the divine being is like gold or silver stone, an image made by human design and skill. In the past, God overlooked such ignorance, but now he commands all people everywhere to repent. For he has set a day when he will judge the world with justice by the man he has appointed. He has given proof of this to everyone by raising him from the dead. When they heard about the resurrection of the dead, some of them sneered, but others said, we want to hear you again on this subject. At that, Paul left the council. Some of the people who became followers of Paul and believed. Among them was Dionysius, a member of the Areopagus, also a woman named Damaris, and a number of others. This is the word of God for the people of God, and so we give thanks to God. Thanks be to God. Would you pray with me? Well, Father, we are so thankful and so grateful to be in this place and in this space together. God, as your scripture tells us, where two or more are gathered in your name, you are here among us. And so, Father, we just recognize your presence in this place. And we ask you by the, by the power of the Holy Spirit to do what only you can do which is to give us eyes to see, ears to hear, hearts to receive, whatever it is you have for us this morning. That we would be rid of any distraction that would keep us from continuing in this space of worship right now. Because we, Father God, desire for our offering to be like a sweet aroma to you. And so, Father, we love you, and we trust you, and we ask you to use this time, and it's in the mighty name of Jesus that we pray, amen. Well, over the course of my life, I've had the great opportunity to experience what God is doing around the world in many different countries and languages and cultures all through the avenue of mission work. And there are so many profound moments that have happened in my spiritual life while I've been engaging in cross-cultural ministry. And oftentimes the ones that stick out the most prominent to me are the ones where I feel like God has taught me a truth about him, who he is and who we are in relation to him. Maybe for the first time, or maybe the first time that I really grasped it. And so 
I think about a time that I was 19 years old and I was in Nicaragua. I was with a group of 10 people and we had come to Nicaragua to partner with a church for a little over a week. And really, we were just along for the ride. We were doing whatever it is that they did ministerially throughout the week. And I'll tell you, I am still, when I think about them, so so impressed on their response to the call and mandate for us as believers to love and care for the least of these and the orphan and the widow. I Getting to partner alongside of them was one of the honors of, of my life. And so every day, the 10 of us would get up and just kind of be like, okay, what's next? What are we, what are we doing today? And so on this particular day when we got up, we were told that we were going to be going into houses, into homes of either church members or people that the church members just knew in the community. But the people that we were specifically visiting on this day were people that were known uh, to just be walking through some hard stuff or walking through various different types of, of circumstances and struggles and we were asked to just kind of come alongside and bring any kind of encouragement or a listening ear or a warm hug. But it, it was kind of funny for us as the group of 10 because we didn't get any context of stories or anything before we were walking into these houses, but it was just one team member to go into each house. And so we'd walk up to a house and we'd kind of look at each other and be like, and the spirit is telling you, it's your time, go on in. And, and we truly did. We were just kind of like, okay, we don't know what we're walking into, what you're going to be walking into circumstantially, but all right, you're the one, you're the one God's asking to go in and meet whoever this is in this place, in this space with them. And so I found myself in, it was my time to walk into a home, and I walk into this home, and I sit down on a couch, and I am faced across a young mom who had three children sitting at her feet. Uh, the youngest, probably about three or four, and the oldest being about 10. And I'm sitting across from her, and she begins to tell me how she had just unexpectedly lost her husband. And how she was struggling. Struggling with how she was going to provide for her family. She was angry at God and didn't know what to do with that anger of wrestling with why is this my story? And she didn't know if her love was going to be enough for her kids. And as I'm sitting here listening to this woman tell me her story and currently where she's at so honestly and so vulnerably and very transparent, um, I'm sitting there in awe and this reoccurring thought is just going over and over and over again in my mind and my heart and my spirit. Wow, God, you don't give us our stories just for us. You don't give us our stories just for us. Because as this woman finished telling me where um, she was at and just pouring her heart out to me, I got to then share with her from a place of humble connection and say, my mom was about the same age as you when my dad passed away. 
and I have three siblings, and we were about the age of your kids, too. And my mom found herself in the midst of wrestling through so much of the same questions and doubts and anger that you yourself are in the midst of. And I got to encourage her that God sees her. That God is good on his promises when, when he says that he is close to the brokenhearted. And I got to assure her that her love and the father's love that is in her and flowing through her to her kids is more than enough. And that I was standing as a testimony of a single mom of that promise fulfilled. And it was this beautiful, powerful, unexpected moment of connection with a woman that did not share my language, not my culture, but that God had given us a connection point in our stories and who we were to be reminded that we have been given what we've been given, who God's created us to be and who we are to resonate with others for such a time as this. And similarly, in our text today, we find Paul, because of his story and his background and his experiences that he has walked through, he is given resonance and reliability and credibility with an audience of people that maybe he wouldn't otherwise have had that, that ease of connection point with. And to use that to bring glory to God in sharing the gospel. And so, in our text, where are we? Where are we in the book of Acts? Well, we find ourselves with Paul on Paul's second missionary journey. And Paul's missionary journeys were literally just going to share the good news of Jesus and him resurrected with anybody who would listen. And in this text, he has found himself in Athens, Greece, and specifically this passage of scripture, he is speaking to the Athens City Council. And that council of people has roughly about 100 members, and everyone on this council would be very, very well versed in philosophy. And, and the reason why... Paul finds himself in front of this council is a little twofold, but the first is because when Paul was in Athens and he was in the marketplace, he was conversing with people about Jesus as Paul does. It's kind of his thing. And he ends up in conversation with some Stoic philosophers. And so as Paul is sharing what they would call, what the Stoic philosophers would call this new idea, this new idea they wanted Paul to come and present that new idea to the council, to the city council. Because as verse 21, we didn't read this verse, but I'm, I'm, I love it, so I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to quote it here. Because all the Athenians and the foreigners who lived there spent their time doing was nothing but talking about and listening to the latest ideas. This was inherent in part of the culture of the Athenians here in Athens to debate and talk through philosophy. And this is kind of the second fold part of why 
Paul's background and culture and his experiences become so important to why he has a voice here that maybe he wouldn't otherwise have. Because you see, Paul grew up in Tarsus, which is a wealthy, highly educated, major city. And the city is known as the center of Stoic philosophy. This, this city is where the rise of this prominent view of philosophy took place. And so Paul was literally raised in the bedrock of this philosophical viewpoint that the Athenians walk around and talk about and debate through all day long. So as you can see, Paul is so perfectly positioned so intentionally to be able to come in front of this group of people with understanding truly a true understanding of where their hearts and minds are at because this was the foundation of which he was raised in. And he maybe otherwise would not have had the standing or the merit to be able to come in front of them. But the minute that he says he's from Tarsus, they're like, oh, this guy, this guy knows philosophy, maybe better than we do. (laughs) And so he's given credibility and connection right off the bat. So with this literal grounding foundation of their ideas, of their ideals, Paul comes and brings forth something a little bit counter. Paul knows that what these people do is sit here and talk through and wrestle through what is the very fundamental nature of knowledge, reality, existence. And he has come to bring answers to their questions. And I love how our brother Paul addresses the council in this text because he kind of moves through these four truth movements of who Jesus is. First and foremost, Paul starts from talking, starts from knowing who God is and establishing who God is, which is our creator. In verses 24 through 26, is this kind of beautiful testimony that we did not create God, but that he created us and everything that we exist in. And so he is with us and he sustains us. He is creator God. And so out of that place of of establishing that who is God, he is creator God, Paul then leans into what is our responsibility then to God, to this creator God? It's to seek to understand him and to worship him. And verse 27 starts with this saying that God wants us to seek him and reach out to him, though he is not far off from any of us. I love that. And I love that Paul included that, just that, just that little snippet that he's not far off from us in his testimony about who Jesus is. Because, gosh, I believe it just meets the people who he's speaking to right in the midst of where their hearts and minds are at. Because whether this council or the Athenians realized it or not, what they were seeking for was Jesus. 
the answer to all of their questions about reality, about life and existence, they were found in Jesus. And Jesus delights in their seeking to find him. And he's not far off. And Paul knows this. And he's aching, aching for this council to know this too. And then Paul moves even more deeply into who we are. So God is creator. What is our responsibility towards him? It's to seek to understand and worship him. And then deeper, not only just being created by God, but we are God's offspring. In verse 28 begins with this claim, and Paul quickly pulls in, I don't know if you caught that, he just sprinkles in a quote from a Stoic philosophical poet to continue to support his argument of who God is. Gosh, it is not only such a great communication tool, but it is, again, this reminder to the audience that he is talking to that Paul knows them, understands where they're coming from, and, and, and knows what they read and who they would relate to. And gosh, I just think that is such a great reminder even for us, an example for us of what it looks like to be in the world but not of the world. That Paul was not detached from the culture or knowing uh, what people were resonating with and relating to and reading, but yet he was able to draw from that and, and bring support to the God that created all of this. I just think it's beautiful. It's really, really beautiful. And lastly, Paul leans into maybe what could be perceived as the hardest part of his testimony of Jesus here in front of this council. As he leans into what, our, what is our accountability if we dishonor Jesus, which is judgment. We cannot plead ignorance anymore who, who have heard Christ. Ignorance at its base definition and, and believed here is not meant to be a derogatory term in nature, but to simply mean those who do not understand or do not know whatever said principle. And so, and so what is... And, and, and most notably, the times before the gospel, the times before Jesus came, could be defined as times of ignorance. Because before Jesus came, died, and resurrection, we could be ignorant to the full, full reality of his deity. It, it, was, it was all prophecy, Right? But yet now, Jesus has proven himself as Christ in Christ's birth, crucified, and resurrected. And so because of that, men cannot plead ignorance anymore. Paul is saying that now that you know, that we know and we have heard that Jesus is king, there is accountability to his authority. Paul speaks confidently yet honorably to this council of people. 
he dismisses himself after uh, some people are wanting to engage more in conversation and others are sneering and, and kind of disgruntled by the claims that he is making. And so he, he exits. He exits the conversation and outside when people follow him, he engages with those people who are asking more questions about Jesus. Again, in this, in this beautiful display of coming forth and presenting what he believes and then walking away honorably, and, but yet engaging those who in that moment at that time had ears to hear and hearts to receive the truth of who Jesus is. I, I'm kind of blown away as kind of a communication person at the way that Paul addresses this council. He really is this shining example of what any good communicator of the gospel would emulate and represent. Because Paul stands confidently on the word of God and the truth of Jesus. He backs up his claims with evidence. He brings forth examples showing that he knows his audience and is seeking to grasp their attention so that they would believe what he is saying. But he's engaging in all of this, all of this in a manner that is authentic, confident, yet grace-filled. And I think it's important also to note that Paul never saw his delivery of the truth as punishment or condemnation or judgment. He saw it as liberating. Liberating that there is clarity. Freedom in the fact that both Jews and non-Jews alike could be saved. That the answer that everyone was searching for could take a ceasefire. Because it has been found in Jesus. In relieving that you or I don't have to muster up or try to figure out what is the way, who is the way, and who is the judge. We have a judge. And we have a standard of right and wrong in the righteousness of Jesus. And this is not meant to scare us or give us weaponry to the world around us, but to simply bring an invitation for soothing and healing to the balm of your soul. Paul was not trying to bring bondage or judgment to people who thought or believed differently than him. He was trying to bring healing and liberation for what he desperately believed was the truth of God's love for the world. And as an imitator of Christ, 
Paul cannot say that he loved people and loved the world as Jesus did if he did not tell them what he believed was the truth. He, and, and you see in this display of his, his testimony to the council, he didn't beat this council over the head into believing submission. No, that wasn't his heart. He just passionately offered his beliefs and desired that anyone who would listen might too have freedom in Jesus. Rather than continuing to constantly search for the latest and new idea of what this whole thing called life meant. He felt he was bringing the truth and the answers that they all were consciously and subconsciously searching for. And he couldn't say that he really loved them if he didn't share it. And friends, what I believe is true or was true for the Athenians, I believe is true for us as well. That our bias, subjectivity, can be met with grounded objectivity. Giving astounding certainty, which offers chain-breaking liberty. That our bias subjectivity can be met with grounded objectivity. Giving astounding certainty, which gives chain-breaking liberty. Jesus' clarity is kindness, and his kindness leads to repentance. And repentance from what? Repentance from thinking you and I are the scale of righteousness. Because, let's be honest with ourselves here. We change, we grow, we think and say one thing and we do another. We were never meant to carry the weight of deciphering and deciding who or what is worthy of judgment. That is truly in our God's hands. What liberation and freedom and assurance for us, for our minds and our hearts and our souls. Thank God he didn't rest that weight on our shoulders. In what a holy and righteous God that we have that gives confidence that there is a standard for judgment and justice and that he will make good on his promises. Jesus can't say that he loves us and not tell us the truth, but it's also not loving to live in the absence of definitive justice. Just as we see and desire for wrongs to be made right all around us every day, we have a God who promises that he loves us, and because he deeply loves us, he cannot have injustice unending. I'm going to read a quote by Lee Strobel, and 
I think this quote beautifully articulates what is typically, at least in my own spirit, a, a wrestling concept about the tender relationship between judgment, justice, and love. Justice delayed is not necessarily justice denied. There will come a day when God will settle accounts and people will be held responsible for the evil they've perpetrated and the suffering they've caused. Criticizing God for not doing it right now is like reading half a novel and criticizing the author for not resolving the plot. God will bring accountability at the right time. I love this. In fact, the Bible says one reason he's delaying is because some people are still following the clues and have yet to find him. He's actually delaying the consummation of history out of his great love for them. Wow. Out of God's great love for us, he waits so that more and more may be free. What a loving God. What a righteous judge in Jesus we have. And he has made a way for us to know him and to follow him. Friends, may we go out into the world and use who God has created each of us our stories, our experiences, our circumstances, who we are in Christ, both in conversation and in deed, to offer the world this great liberty. Would you pray with me? Well, God, we are astounded at the way in which you love us and that there is freedom and liberation in knowing that you have not left us on our own to try to figure out and determine who is right, what is right, any of this standard or scale for righteousness and leaving us without answers to our questions. Our hope, our identity, and the resting of our souls is found in you, is found in Jesus. We have right standing before the Father because our Jesus is not dead, but he is standing. He is alive and well, and he is righteous, and he is good, and he desires for all of us to know him, to seek him, to follow him and to love him because he first loved us. Father, you are good.
We love you, and we trust you. And we pray all of this in the mighty name of Jesus. Mm-hmm.